0: But we're not going to be in Revelation this morning, we're going to the opposite end of the Bible. Believe it or not, we're going back to Exodus. It has been um, maybe four, or five, six weeks, I don't know, um, but we were working our way through Exodus, and then I had the tremendous privilege of making a trip to Israel, and um, so I had folks filling in for me, and then it came back, and I shared a little bit off and on about that trip, and then had two weeks of school, and so um, we were out of Exodus again for a couple weeks, and so now we're, we're going back, and I hope at our next family night supper, which I, would be the, the last Wednesday of this month, that I can do a slideshow and show you pictures from, from my trip, and so we can go by those and um, go through those, and you can see a little bit of what I got to see, and um, yeah, I'll look forward to sharing that with you, so Next family night supper, I, I got to do some tech work to make that happen, but I think we can do it with God's help. Um, yeah, so let's, let's sort of remember where we've been. Let's reorient ourselves for a minute. Um, we began with Exodus and the people in slavery, the people in bondage. Of course, Joseph had come there, um, sent by his brothers into slavery But what they intended for evil, God meant for good. And so later when famine came, all his brothers and family came to Egypt hoping for relief from famine. And lo and behold, who was the second person in command in the whole country and who provided food for them? Joseph. But over time, as the family grew and became greater in number, so also did Joseph pass away and the generations passed one to the next. And a new Pharaoh came who imprisoned and enslaved the people, and for 400 years they worked in bondage in Egypt. And then the Scriptures tell us that God looked and saw the plight of His people. He saw their suffering. And so He called Moses to go and to set His people free. Moses, who had had been born under a curse. Remember, Pharaoh said that all the male children, two and under, were to be killed so that there would be no uprising. And so... His mother and his sister placed Moses in a basket and exposed him to the elements and placed them in the river. That's not the piece we were singing about, is it? They placed him in the river and sent him off into death. And he floated downstream until, in God's providence, who was there? Pharaoh's daughter. And she drew him out of the river. That's what Moses means, to be drawn out. She drew him out of the river. And guess who was there to bear witness to this? Miriam. Moses' sister. That's a key part, actually, for later. And who is it um, that she recommends to care for this baby until he's done nursing? His own mother, right? And so you see all this unfold. Moses' life fast forwards and he sees, as an adult, one of the Egyptian taskmasters beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And so what does he do? He strikes down the Egyptian, buries him in the, in the sand, flees to Midian where he meets the priest of Midian, marries one of his daughters, becomes a shepherd, eventually meets God on the mountain in the bush that burns without being consumed. And God speaks to him and sends him back to Pharaoh and reveals his name to him. I am who I am. And, and calls him to go to Pharaoh's courts with a staff in his hand that turns into a serpent and swallows up the serpent who is Pharaoh and wears that emblem upon his headdress and to lead God's people out of slavery into freedom. So he goes with Aaron, his brother, who later becomes the priest of Israel, and they confront Pharaoh, and there's this back and forth and back and forth, and the ten plagues unfold until the last one arrives, which, which Chip preached on, which was what? The Passover, the, the death of the firstborn, and the Passover lamb is slain, the blood is wiped upon the door frames, and the form of a cross and the angel of death passes over all Israel but strikes down all the firstborn of the livestock and of the people and even Pharaoh's own son and he's had enough and he says go and they go but they take an interesting route and the Lord sends them around a different way and Pharaoh has second thoughts and sends his armies after them. All 600 chariots, all the soldiers are descending upon Israel as they come with the sea in front of them. And Pharaoh's armies approaching from behind. And that's where our passage picks up this morning. So yeah, we're going down to the river. Going down to the sea. To witness the Lord's deliverance. So, if you'd like to read along with me. Um, returning to Exodus chapter 14. It's a bit of a longer passage, but it is riveting. We'll begin with verse 10. Verse 10 of the 14th chapter of Exodus. Listen carefully and listen well. This too is the word of the Lord. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you when we were in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea. Divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart, hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of the Egyptians and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up at night, without one coming near the other all night. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. I'll interrupt long enough to say, do you see echoes of Genesis here? Echoes of the creation, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and then the waters being divided from the waters and dry land appearing. It's a new creation that's happening in Israel. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea "...on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so, so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel." The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and a wall to them on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians Dead on the seashore, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. let speak to God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you say that it is for freedom that you have set us free. And so now as we move in the midst of our own exodus journeys, as we are surrounded in so many ways in this moment, in this day, in this time, by forces that leave us feeling trapped and uncertain of our next steps. We pray that you would come and set us free. That we might walk in true freedom, no longer in bondage, but free from external forces and free for you. And so now as we pause in this moment, with your cross lifted high in the sanctuary before us, something like Moses' staff, which makes a way forward. As we sit in two uh, rows with an aisle down the center, we pray that you would come as our great, um, a greater Moses and walk before us, showing us the way that leads to life. May your word be for us a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus is a freedom journey, isn't it? It begins, the people in bondage and slavery, the Lord looks on their suffering and looks on their enslavement and says, I will set you free. And we see the process of that freedom as it unfolds. Exodus is a freedom narrative. And I think we get that. I think we get most of that. Because freedom is something that has um, marked our way and marked our lives uh, in the culture in which we live. My sister uh, interviewed someone last week. Uh, a lady who's from Ireland, had a great accent, um, and was asking her about a book that she'd written. And, and this lady has written a book about some people from Ireland who in the 17th century, so 1600s, before the revolution, before America was a, you know anything more than colonies, um, these, these Irish people who immigrated to the U.S., who came across the ocean and came here eager to escape what they understood to be... Um, Government oppression, uh, taxation without representation. You've heard that echoed before. Um, who came here eager, most of all, to separate themselves uh, from religious persecution, or at least um, to experience a freedom here in this place that would allow them to worship as they felt was right and good and true. And so these folks, in this lady's book, uh, certain families came over and, came and moved to Maryland. And they set up, you know, a place, a, a bit of a, a society, a, a way of life, and, and it just didn't work out for them in the way that they had hoped. And so then, guess where they came? North Carolina. They, can't, they moved to North Carolina. My, my sister does some work occasionally for the um, North Carolina History Museum, and so this was tracing this family's journey and movement to arrive here. And, and this is not a unique journey, because most of our region is populated by folks who came, Scotch Irish folks who came um, from those places across the sea toward the Appalachian Mountains and then moved south and kind of settled the mountain places. That's why we have the Highland Games here. Uh, Dale this morning is wearing a Scottish Highland dancing shirt. I noticed it in Sunday school this morning, right? So, like, there, there, this place has been shaped in many ways. Somebody noted my tartan this morning. Yeah, I mean it's it's, every, it's why so many Presbyterian churches populate sort of this corridor. And so we, particularly even in Avery County, think about it. How many folks do you know whose families have been here five or six generations and can go all the way back? From father to son, mother to daughter, generation to generation to generation, this idea of freedom, this idea of autonomy, this idea um, of making decisions for ourselves in a way that no one else has say has been the ethos which has populated our minds and our hearts. And it's just sort of been the air that we breathe. We don't really know what it is like to live outside of that environment. Freedom, right? If anybody in here you know, caught the news or read the newspaper or got online anywhere yesterday. You were reminded of where you were 20 years ago yesterday, I'm sure. Um, I was in Miss Lackey's world history class. 9.30, we go in as history was being made. I turn on the TV and uh, we, we watch the towers fall and we watch the events of the day as um, uh, terrorists flew airplanes into the World Trade Center and then the Pentagon. Um, and we understood that the land of the free and the home of the brave was under attack. And so in some sense, we all kind of understood ourselves as a people um, to have been attacked. And the folks who did these things were, were smart. They attacked symbols of our life in the United States, which also for many of us have become idols. And so in one sense, they were attacking attacking the false gods of America. The World Trade Centers, symbols of our economic power and might, right? The Pentagon, symbol of our military strength. And might. We have the strongest economy of the world, the strongest military in the world. They attack those things. And then there was this third flight, U.S. Airlines Flight 93, that was rerouted and then was flying over Pennsylvania and back towards Washington, D.C., presumably to strike either the U.S. Capitol Building or the White House, right? Symbols of our government and our president. But there's a guy on board that flight who picked up a phone in a closet and made a phone call. His name was Todd Beamer. Do you remember this man? He got on the phone with Lisa, who's on the other end of it. And Lisa also happened to be the name of his wife at home. And as this Lisa on the phone relayed to him the circumstances that they were in, their flight had been hijacked. Uh, passengers had been separated, the front and the back. One guy with a bombing, bomber's belt their vest was on the back with a number of them and two guys had closed themselves in the cockpit and she was telling them that he was probably, they were probably a part of this attack, um, that the World Trade Center had already fallen, the Pentagon had been hit and their flight had now been commandeered. And so he asks her, if she would call his wife uh, and tell her that he loved her. And he asked if she would tell his two sons how much he loved them and uh, how proud he was of them and named the, the child that was yet not born. His wife was pregnant, didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. Um, And in between all of this, the FBI gets on the line. In in the midst of all this, he's communicating with some of the other passengers and they make a plan to subdue the man in the back and then go forward to the cockpit and essentially sacrifice their own lives so that wherever this plane-turned-missile was pointed, those innocent folks, those lives would not also be lost. And so the plane goes down in the fields of, of Pennsylvania. We've all had freedom on our minds lately, haven't we? We long to be free uh, of a world, in, in a world uh, without a virus, right? And, and everybody's trying to figure out how to fix everyone else so that that can happen. And so some folks want to be free from people who won't get a vaccine. And other folks want to be... Um, free to make a decision for themselves and their own bodies. Right? We've looked at attacks on the United States and our perceptions of freedom. Freedom's been on my mind. But freedom, as much as we think about that as, as an American ideal, uh, it goes a lot deeper than that. It goes a back, back a lot further than that. God created us free in the garden. Created us with a free will. Created us with an ability to choose. He didn't want to make robots or automatons that he could direct to move robotically throughout the world and obey every single thing. God wanted to create people in his image that had the freedom to choose, the freedom to love, the freedom to be in a relationship with him because we want it. Not because we're forced into it. It goes all the way to the beginning. It goes into how we were made. It's part of... What's been ingrained into our very beings, into our lives? Freedom. We're we're talking about freedom. And Exodus is the place where we begin to see God's people enslaved and then set free. Here's this theme again. Exodus is a freedom journey, a freedom story. And so I want you to notice something pretty amazing. Now, I have managed to stretch this out for like two or three months now, this Exodus thing. But actually, if we get into it, you know how long it takes for the people to be set free? We just got to it today, right? And Make it through the water. You know, 14 chapters. So God sees his people enslaved by these external forces. And he says, I'm going to set my people free. It takes 14 chapters. It takes 10 plagues and a walk through the water. And the greatest empire known in the world at that time is completely overturned. Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, is swallowed up in the sea. 14 chapters, 10 plagues, a walk through the water. God's done it. I mean, do you see how easy that is? Wow. Do you know what the people did? Well, they stood there and were silent and watched. That's what Moses told them to do, isn't it? He said, be quiet, have faith, watch. The Lord will secure for you this day victory and freedom. Of course, the passage through the sea points us to baptism, doesn't it? In baptism, we pass beneath the waters where all our enemies are drowned and we are raised up, free from them. You see how that plays out, right? So when we see the the passage through the sea, it's a new creation. The Spirit hovers. The waters are parted. Dry land emerges. The people move from slavery to sin and death and Pharaoh into freedom. A new way, a new life. and So the same thing is happening with us in baptism. We are set free as we pass through those waters to the new life that God calls us to. It happens, I mean, it's so easy. I've done it a number of times. I've participated in that sacrament. I mean, the Spirit does it, but I like I'm part of that, and you were part of that, as you bear witness. And I mean, Jonathan Pritz was not that heavy when we were in the fellowship hall, and you know, I took him down beneath the water and raised him back up. It happened like that. Like if you if you blinked, you might have missed it. It wasn't that hard. You know how many more chapters there are in Exodus? 26. So Exodus is a freedom story. Let's get get this straight. God sets the people free in 14 chapters, but then there's 26 more. Now, wouldn't it have been a great opportunity? I mean, you could even count 15 because Exodus 15 demonstrates the great celebration that happened on the other side of the sea. The people get to the other side, they see all their enemies are destroyed, and they celebrate, they worship, they praise. And here it is, guess who was there by the sea leading them with the tambourine, leading them as the people worshipped? Miriam. Miriam's the one who led them in worship. Because just as Moses had been dead, but then was brought and drawn out of the water and was brought to life, so to the people... Though they were dead, Pharaoh's armies, I mean what are they going to do? about 600 chariots, They're, They have no weapons, have been led through the waters, moved from death, and now are entered into life. And Moses, I mean, Miriam's the one who right there, is leading them again. Just like you, being dead in your sin, walked through the water, were passed through the water, and emerged on the other side, now set free to life, and the church receives you and leads in worship. Yeah, those themes are happening over and over again, but why 26 more chapters? What else could there be? Wouldn't that be the perfect ending point? God said, I'm setting my people free so that they might go out and worship me. They might hold a feast in the wilderness. They might offer sacrifice to me. Remember that part? That was the whole point, and now they've done it, so what about the 26 chapters? Here's, here's where it comes down to me in real life the external things aren't the big deal. Because the final 26 chapters, not only of Exodus, the entire rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are all about the people who have now been set free from external forces, now having to be set free from themselves. From their own hearts. We spend so much time and energy and effort and emotion with all these external things right now in our world. Vaccines or not, make somebody take them or not. Masks or not, just on and on and on. We think about these external forces, government or not, we get that, we're, we're Scotch Irish if we go back far enough, right? I mean, we get that. But we spend all our time and energy and effort on TV watching what people are doing everywhere else in the world. And you know how fast God can take care of the external things? That's not the point. Often the external things are what reveal the real problems that we face. The real freedom that we need to experience, which comes right here. I'm doing this to myself because I mean me. Right? The inside stuff. Your heart. Watch how it plays out in the 26th chapter. So, after the people, I mean the people were in Egypt, they said don't do this because it's better for us to serve and be slaves in Egypt than it is for us to go out and be free for God. Um, we'd rather not go, Moses, but then they end up going. And so they make it out, and so they get to the sea, and Pharaoh's coming behind them, and they say it again, wouldn't it be better if we just stayed and we could, be eat, we could eat and be full and, and live than come out in the wilderness and die? There are no graves out here in the wilderness, Moses, or back in Egypt that we need to come out here to die. And so they go out and die, and then God makes another way, and He parts the waters. And they walk through the water. Notice that God does this powerful miracle with water. And then they go and they worship. And then like a day or two later, they're in the wilderness. They're like, good grief, we didn't bring any water. We're thirsty. Moses, did you just bring us out here in the wilderness so that we could die of thirst? Were there no graves? Couldn't we, wouldn't it be better if we were back in Egypt? But there's no Egypt. Pharaoh's dead. The enemies are defeated. There's no Egypt to go back to. And so then they come like God couldn't do something about water after they, what they had just experienced. And they find this pond, this pool. It's called Mara. It's bitter. They couldn't drink the water. It It make them sick. And so Moses took a piece of wood and placed it in the water and it was made pure. The wood, like the wood of the cross, makes pure the waters of baptism so we can have life. And anyway, he... They drink of it and, and they make it a few more days, and you know, you can last longer without food than water, so that you realize we're getting kind of hungry. and God, Moses, did you just bring us out here in the wilderness to die? Was there not graves in Egypt? Do we have to die in the wilderness? What are you going to do, God? It's like God can't do anything. And so then God calls his manna to fall from the sky and light upon the ground. It's delicious to eat and quail to populate the ground in the evening. The people are fed, and it's just over and over again what's happening? They've been set free from the external thing. And now what's coming out of their hearts is that they don't know how to trust God. They don't know how to walk in faith yet. They don't, all they, so the fathers will say that the love of your body is one of the major kind of root sins. We're addicted to our bodies. We do everything we can so that we don't suffer, so that we won't hurt, so that we're not hungry. That's why fasting is a discipline. You learn to overcome your body. In so doing, you overcome your heart and that desire. So they just want to go back to slavery that doesn't even exist. Paul talks about this in Galatians. He says, I can't believe that having received the gospel, you're now just trying to go back to the old way. All right? It's just it's a, it's an ongoing problem for us, really. So we in the church are no different. We in the church continue to grumble like the people of Israel. We in the church continue to think the outside things, the outside elements are the main problem when actually to experience true freedom is to experience freedom from the inside out, not the outside in. Again, this comes to a four, comes to sort of a a high point when God says, okay, I brought you out. I continue to feed you and give you water and care for you each day. I'm in the pillar of cloud leading you around and showing you where to go and you're learning that. You're beginning to learn that. So he takes them up Mount Sinai and he's giving them the law. He's giving them the commandments. He says, this is the way that I've made you to live. Actually, the commandments are freedom. And as you walk in these ways in which I've made you to live, you will experience it for yourself. But the irony is this, right? Right? Well, at the same time that's happening, what are the people doing? They're at the bottom of the mountain, hammering some gold together to shape, to to be in the form of a calf, so that they can bow down and worship it. I mean, I mean, it boggles the mind, doesn't it? And yet we do the same things. We make idols out of stuff. True freedom is freedom from within, the freedom from the passions. The freedom from idolatry. But that's not the only freedom. Uh, we're freed from external things. We're freed from our, ourselves. But the most important thing, I think, in the end, is what we are free for. It's not just a freedom from, it's a freedom for. There's a positive element to this. What are you free for when God sets you free? Think about it. I mean, what, what are you free for? You're free for God. You're free for true life. You're free for relationship with him. You're free from yourself in such a way that you're enabled now to love. You're free for love. And love has no greater one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Christ is the one who truly loves. And Christ is the one in whom we experience freedom. Um, I'm, I'm going to read you one quote. Because following after Christ is called discipleship. This powerful truth is at the heart of Christian discipleship. The opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the most beautiful statements on Christian doctrine, asks this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer is profound, exodus-shaped, and delightful. Here's the answer. What's your only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the line. The freest people in the world are those who are owned by someone else. That's not how I usually think about it the freest people in the world are those who are owned by someone else, our faithful Savior Jesus Christ. Service is liberty. Obedience is joy. Goes that quote. Freedom from external things, yes, but truly freedom from ourselves and our sinfulness and our desire to go back over and over again to someone less than God. Here's my closing thought. Let's go back to Todd Beamer. You might say that he felt a little trapped. He's however many thousand feet in the air on an airplane that's not gonna reach his destination. What did he think of? His wife, his children, his family? friends, neighbors, surely his country. (coughs) And then he asked Lisa one final favor. He said, would you pray with me? As he said, oh Jesus, help me. They prayed our Father who art in heaven. They prayed the Lord's Prayer. And then they finished with the Lord's Prayer and they prayed Psalm 23. Now those are the two prayers. Honestly, when we're in a bit of a hurry and need to go to bed at night, that Lily and Anna and I pray. The Lord's prayer in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then, you know, his famous line, let's roll. Right? He had come to the place where he was thinking of his family, he was thinking of those he loved, and he was willing to lay his life down that others might not know death. His external circumstances could not have been any worse. He could not have been any more trapped or any more enslaved. But he he knew and had in that moment an inner freedom, didn't he? To lay down his life, as the others on that plane so courageously did. I want us to get to that point. You and me together. Together so that we're not so concerned and burdened and trapped by everything outside of us, but that we might focus the bulk of our attention, as does Exodus and the whole Scripture, to overcoming those things in our lives that truly bind us, so that we can be free from all of that and free for God, and free to love our neighbors as ourselves and even lay down our lives, and even in some mysterious way, Do what Jesus commanded us to do. To love even our enemies. That's true freedom. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.